Order, order, and welcome to today's session of the Transport Select Committee. Welcome to Calling All Stations, Episode 9. I'm Christian Walmer, and as usual, we will be bringing you a good range of news from the transport scene. This time, it's a rather special edition, as you'll hear my evidence to the Commons Transport Select Committee on driverless cars. We will have a brief look at the Railway Forum, which is becoming an ever more powerful lobbying voice in the railway industry. And then we will examine the crisis in the heritage railway business. To start off with, having written a book on driverless cars or autonomous vehicles, driverless cars on a road to nowhere, I was asked to give evidence to the Transport Committee in the Commons on March the 8th. And so here's a few extracts of the highlights. Uh, I'm Christian Romer. I'm a writer and broadcaster on transport affairs and I'm the author of Driverless Cars on a Road to Nowhere. Let me just pose a question. Um, how many of you came by driverless car this morning? I somewhat suspect that nobody did and my driverless bicycle doesn't exist either. And I'm making a serious point there because... Uh, we've been at this for a long time. This is not a new technology. This is a technology that started uh, really with the American Defence uh, Organisation about 15 years ago. And there have been constant efforts by uh, the uh, driverless car uh, technology uh, enthusiasts and the, the companies to uh, suggest that this is just around the corner. And, and one of the things I'm worried about, your committee uh, kind of uh, uh, seems to be set up to suggest that this is going to happen inevitably um, and what you've got to do is adapt to ways of kind of bringing it into use. Whereas I think we have to uh, go back a step there and ask, you know, what is the kind of feasibility of this? Uh, is it desirable? What's it for? Um, and uh, you know, is it at all likely to, to uh, come about? Let me just end opening remarks on one point, which is that uh, the, the idea that the computers see the world as we do um, is completely wrong. So if you close your eyes and then open them again, you immediately see kind of a vast array of detail that we are able to uh, ad adapt to. Whereas the computer will uh, interpret, for example, a car as a blue box. Any car is a blue box. Any, any human being is a, is a, is a pink cylinder. Um, you know, it, it, is, it, it sees a completely different world. And so what I'm worried about is that this is not understood, that, that the idea that we can replicate driving because um, humans are actually pretty good at it, and I can give some more detail on that later, uh, we can replicate driving automatically, and I'm not sure what that is all about. So where, where would your thoughts be on given where technology is and the technology could be there to have the automated control? How well, do we... How do we square that circle of where the human stops being responsible? Well, yes, I think it's very good to distinguish between driver assist technology and, and driverlessness, uh, absolutely. And it was noticeable that in the speaker in your previous panel 
was uh, very focused on the fundamental problem of this, which is that you can't have a half-driverless car, right? It has to have a moment where you have uh, 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 you rely completely on the technology, and that's the difference between level three and level four. Um, and I, I have some suspicion that this might be insuperable. I mean, obviously, you know, it's difficult to talk about uh, technology being insuperable, but several auto manufacturers have basically given up on developing uh, level three because of that transition moment, which, which is so problematic. And, and as was mentioned, uh, different kind of suggestions are that that transition moment should take two seconds or 40 seconds. But it is that idea that you can't have semi-driverless. Semi so therefore, you have to have total driverless. Now, what I find funny, and I've, I've been studying this, looking at all the developments for the last five or six years since I, I took up this, what is funny about this is that you get all these trials and they say, the newspapers say, driverless technology is going to be implemented in so-and-so. I mean, this all started off when I got interested in an Evening Standard article about 10 years ago that said, you know, we're going to have driverless cars in London by, certainly by now. Um, and your chap from, from Stagecoach in the last, uh, uh, in the last panel uh, highlighted precisely that problem. You're, they're going to have an operator, right? And they want an operator not only to control the, the, the uh, vehicle in case of emergency, but also because people want somebody on board of a bus. So you start to think, well, they're going to introduce all this incredibly expensive technology. And this technology is very expensive, right? I mean, all the LIDARs and, and, and all the sensors and whatever, it's very expensive technology. So what are they trying to do here? Because if you still need a human on board, and training somebody to drive a car is not that difficult, or even a bus is not that difficult, it doesn't take long. So where, where is the saving from this? What, what is the point of this technology? And I think that you know, that is one of the fundamental questions that must be asked. What, why, why, for example, is the government spending some £250 million on encouraging this sort of uh, technology when it doesn't seem to actually solve any particular problem? Um couple of uh, follow-ups. Firstly, I, I can't, it's not for me to speak for Stagecoach, but they would argue that having their bus captain who is there to assist uh, passengers is actually better value for the, the passenger uh, than having the driver behind the wheel who has to focus almost 100% on driving. Uh, but my next question is, how would you respond to the point that uh, with humans driving accidents, injuries, fatalities happen every day of the year. And well, is it not the case that uh, automating some of this will help reduce uh, the number of accidents? Well, that again was addressed uh, very well by your uh, previous uh, panel. And uh, the first question you have to try to answer, which is going to be difficult for your uh, committee, it's going to be difficult for anyone, is uh, what level of safety are you expecting? <clears throat> So are you expecting a uh, driverless car to be as safe or a little bit less safe or more safe than uh, existing human drivers? And existing human drivers are better than you might think, 
right? We are pretty good at it. We, we, we can kind of deal with lots and lots of situations. Of course, we, you know, somebody dies, you know, over, I think it's 11 million or so, so there's a serious accident. I don't use statistics so easily to look up. But uh, by and large, most people end up back home safely from their journeys, right? So, uh, first of all, you have to decide what level of, of safety would it be uh, necessary to impose on, on driverless cars? You know, does, does it have to kind of uh, be better than uh, humans? And I think it does. And then you get into uh, all sorts of difficulties about how do you make it better? Because currently, at the moment, in most of the trials, the operator... Uh, takes over at some point uh, when there are emergencies. And the rate of takeover is relatively high, particularly in difficult situations like driving through. I mean, in my book, I mentioned the Holborn problem. You know, you try and get a driverless car to go through Holborn at six o'clock in the evening. It is virtually impossible, right? And uh, so, so, therefore, uh, you have to kind of somewhat build into this vehicle that it can drive through very difficult situations with lots of pedestrians and lots of cars and lots of cyclists and whatever and do it safely. And I think that might be insuperable because the, the driver, as in Isaac Asimov's rules of robots, the, the car mustn't uh, be programmed to hurt somebody, to, to injure somebody. And therefore you have to program it to stop when people walk in front of it and the like. Um, and that makes it very difficult to work out how you can have that level of safety and yet run a car that is at all reasonable in traffic without it having to stop all the time. Thank you. And one last question uh, from me before I hand over to colleagues. Do you see a way of sort of segregating the, the autonomous vehicle market? You, you've given the example of the difficulties of taking a car through central London at, at rush hour. But a very different case would be going along, say, the M6 in Cumbria, if I was driving up to see family in Scotland. Uh, would you see a potential for them operating there, where there's not, you know, there's a, not a segregated lane, but you've got one road going in one direction? Yes, again, that, that was addressed by uh, uh, the previous panel uh, very well. Uh, the problem there, of course, is, um, you know, if I'm going to start my journey from my house in Holloway, which is very crowded and whatever, and then go up the uh, M1 and M6 to, to uh, Scotland, where, yes, I'll be able to have an autonomous uh, vehicle for some of that, but it, would it be the same vehicle? Is it really worth uh, uh, the hassle? And, and would it... Uh, you know, ha I don't kind of envisage a situation where it would be possible uh, to do that without having to have, I don't know, two different cars or people taking over at different points or whatever. If the, the whole point that this started off, and it's important to remember this, this started off as uh, a nirvana, as a dream by various uh, technical people in America, uh, whose names pop up all the time in this, as completely replacing 
the way that cars operate, right? They, they presented this picture, and I've, I've been at conferences where I've debated against people who uh, have been proselytizing in that way. They presented it as a completely different world. Your, your, your grandparents would be able to be taken to hospital in a driverless car, your kids would be able to be taken there, and then you'd be able to go into the office and you'd send the driverless car home, and, and so on. And it would be an entirely driverless car world. And that isn't now going to happen. They, they've admitted that isn't going to happen. So then you have to think, well, where are the use cases that it's worthwhile? Obviously, airport, airside, or whatever, some very limited uses. But otherwise, is it really worth all the, all the hassle and all the, 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 the cost of developing this technology uh, to just kind of help you drive up the M6 a bit? Fair point. Um, Jack, if I can... Thank you, Chair. In how realistic do you think it is that this technology is going to become um, more dominant or the dominant uh, technology in the future? Well, you know, I don't, I'm not a Luddite, right? You know, I, I use my mobile phone as much as anybody and, and all, all that thing. I no longer watch television. I only watch kind of box sets and so on, you know. So I'm not a Luddite. But on this one... I do think that uh, the technologists bit off more than they could chew. And uh, by presenting that vision of this kind of world of, of driverlessness um, and a completely different kind of uh, approach to transport, uh, they made a big mistake. If they had said, you know, we're going to develop a, a technology that will make things a bit safer for you, that will enable you to, to uh, you know, swap lanes driving up motorways, it might even enable you to have kind of automatic braking systems in certain yeah. uh, cases and so on. I think that would have been fine. And we could see an incremental improvement. Already, haven't we? It's, Sorry? We've got some of that already. We've got some of that already, and that's all fine. But I think taking the leap, and particularly that leap to level four, where the car can drive itself uh, all the time, even within a, a constrained area, I think might prove to be impossible. In, in kind of, you know, in rain, in nighttime, in, you know, places uh, where there's lots of pedestrians. I mean, just in every use case, I think that might prove to be impossible. Because I can't, you know... I might be, you know, laughed at in 20 years' time as, a, as, as like the people who originally thought that trains would kind of, you know, kill all the sheep when they drove through. You know, I, I might be wrong, but I, you know, having studied this for, for several years and looked at the lack of progress on this and the fact that every trial still has uh, an operator or a remote control or whatever, almost, there's a few robo-taxis that don't, but they're very limited uh, I, I can't see this progressing to a state where it changes our lives. Any of our other witnesses want to add a view on whether it will remain theoretical at level five? I, I mean, I've already said that, but I, I, I think one of the important things is that there might be an attempt to adapt the environment so that level five then becomes feasible. Right. In other words, that local authorities will be expected to make sure all their road signs are properly painted and make sure that there are Belize's to kind of enable vehicles to be interconnected or whatever. They might have to spend a vast amount of money doing that. And, and I think that should be resisted. Mm -hmm. and do you, why do you think there has been such a focus on 
this technology? You know, there's been a huge hype around this is the solution to so many things. Why, why has there, if, if as you say, you know, the, the, this is not really uh, viable in many cases, why, why has there been such focus on this? If you look at the origins of it, it, it did come uh, as uh, from really Silicon Valley in, in California, uh, some, some very bright people with a lot of spare cash, I think surplus cash, because they, they work for technologies that develop monopolies and therefore they make kind of super profits, and thought this was the next big idea. And, and these are quite powerful people, uh, as I say, with literally hundreds of millions, billions behind them that they could spend on playing with this technology. And, and as you know, America is very car-oriented. Um, and so the, the idea kind of then generated that, you know, this could become the next big thing for motor vehicles. And I think that's why. And they, they were backed up by a lot of media hype. Look, every, almost every article I read about this kind of presents a case that isn't quite true because it says self-driving cars are going to be introduced and so-and-so and in and, and, and different places and we're going to have this experiment and, and so on and it's going to change our lives in lots of ways. So there's been, it, it's quite a sexy kind of subject for the media to get on. So it's that combination of a lot of footloose capital some very bright, techie people kind of pushing it, and the media kind of being eager for stories of, you know, how we're all going to be in, in self-driving cars in, in three years' time. It's always three years' time. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, before I turn to Ben, Graham, you wanted a quick supplementary? If you don't mind, Joe, I, I was just quite interested in something that Ed said about consumer choice and the Transport Select Committee. I thought it was two years ago. I've just looked it up. It was, it was actually five years ago in 2018. <laughs> We did a very interesting inquiry into uh, mobility as a service, mass, and I, I thought it was a. F I didn't know what that was when we started the inquiry, but I thought it was a, a fascinating concept. I don't know if that's Mr. Walmart, if that's a utopian idea, but the, what's your view on that concept of mobility as a service and the role of self-driving or, or um, autonomous vehicles within yeah, that. I, 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 might, I really don't want to come across as, as a Luddite, but I have looked at this uh, uh, idea. And as you say, it's five years ago. And again, mobility as a service is a concept that hasn't really kind of uh, uh, been brought forward in many places. And, and the idea is, I mean, I think the idea is fundamentally flawed. The idea is that you wake up in the morning and you have one app and you think, oh, today I might hire a car or today I'll take the bus, or um, today I might cycle. And then you, in, you use this app to kind of decide your, your different transport modes. You, you think that's a flawed uh, idea? I think that it's, it's pretty unnecessary in this day and age. We have lots of different apps for lots of different things. And I don't think many people wake up in the morning not having decided what mode of transport they, they, they're going to use. And so I think it's another of this kind of uh, technological fixes for the fundamental problems of uh, road congestion. Yes, uh, Christian, I'm interested, uh, is there a, a, a historical parallel that you can find in the development of transport technology and practice uh, of your rich, clever people spending a lot of money and pouring it down the drain? Um, uh, no, it's, it's, it's odd that. I, I, I've spent a lot of time thinking, uh, you know, what, why has this uh, obsession kind of uh, carried on for so long? It, it is waning a bit, it must, it must be said. 
Um, but um, I think my comparison with, with um, past times is uh, slightly more mundane. If you look at pictures of, uh, you know, outside here, Westminster Square in 1920, you'll see bicycles, you'll see rather more horses, uh, admittedly, than uh, anything else, but you'll see uh, trucks, you'll see buses, uh, you'll see trams, uh, um, and by and large, if you look out there today, you'll see the same kind of methods of, of transport. And so a, a lot of these uh, uh, technical developments that we've been promised, and there's, there's others, there's like Hyperloop, uh, there is mobility as a service, there, there's uh, maglev, uh, you know, de different kind of technologies. Uh, if you remember, we were going to get to Australia in an hour and a half with, in rockets and so on. And so a lot of the, the, the technological promises of, uh, of transport have not materialised. You know, we, we are essentially moving in much the same way as we did in 1920. Um, and uh, so um, uh, I don't know why these guys thought they could completely change it. I, I think, as I stress, it's, it's the footloose capital that kind of did it. I've just been at a reception for uh, the Railway Forum and I thought I'd nab its director, Elaine Clark, for a little chat about what the Forum is doing and how she sees things on the railway. Elaine, welcome to Calling All Stations and thank you for doing this interview. Tell me, what, what is the Railway Forum and what exactly do you do? <laughs> okay, so the Rail Forum was set up 30 years ago by the supply chain, for the supply chain. And I think the history is really important, Christian. It was set up by companies that were being privatised coming out of British Rail when they didn't know how they were going to work together commercially going forward. So it's very much seen as a networking group for those companies that were, as they were created. And that ethos has continued throughout. So it's very much about promoting the supply chain, encouraging and facilitating companies working together for the betterment of the railway. Right, and uh, do you have, uh, how are you funded? I mean, do you have uh, a fund from the government or do you have to self-fund by members or what? We are absolutely self-funding by members, so we don't get any funding from government. Uh, it's all through membership fees and we have a, a unique structure in terms of the way our membership works. Flat fee for everybody, because it's about everybody having a voice. It's about everybody having the same level of voice, not big companies having more, say, than small companies, because it needs everybody to work together to make the railway work. I think your origins were definitely in the East Midlands, weren't they? They were absolutely around Derby in Derbyshire, uh, and the Derbyshire councils were instrumental in helping to set up the forum. And it all goes back to those days of privatisation from the old, for those of the people that remember the, the old Derby RTC. Um, and then it just evolved and grew from there. More and more companies got involved, it grew outside of the Midlands, people liked what we were doing, and, uh, and we've grown to what we are today. So you're now uh, national. You, you, you've, Very you've, much national. Do you see yourself as representing these companies or, or merely being a talking shop or what precisely? We do represent our members. We don't lobby in the sort of traditional sense of the word. Uh, but we've in, just in been a at a parliamentary reception. Yeah, we don't lobby in a vocal way. <laughs> right. We work quietly behind the scenes in a more collaborative way, shall we say, to try and bring people together to understand you know, what's government's agenda, what's our supply chain's agenda, and let's find a way of making that all work together. Uh, so we do represent our members, absolutely. And we're in slightly troubled times for the railways. I, do you see any particular thing you'd like to see government do to get us out of this? Get it moving. <laughs> get the reform moving. I think everybody recognises the need for reform. 
Uh, we might all have different ideas on what that looks like and what we need to do, but we all recognise there is a need to change. We just want to get on with it. The supply chain can really, really help drive the reform agenda. We can help drive a better railway. We need to have that facilitation from government to allow us to get on with it. Um, we need the investment clearly as well. So we need that assurance, assurance of pipeline going forward, both rolling stock and infrastructure. We hear a lot about infrastructure, but it's also about rolling stock too. So we need that assurity. We need that clarity and that long-term plan that people keep talking about. Um, do you uh, talk to the other side as well, uh, to, to the Labour Party? Do you, do you see them as being helpful? Absolutely. We, we as, an, as an organisation, we work, we're apolitical, so we work with anybody and everybody. We have to, for obvious reasons. Uh, we do visits, so we've taken, for example, the Shadow Rail Minister to two or three different places for him to visit different companies, understand the supply chain. We've been to Doncaster, we've been to Milton Keynes, we've been to Derby, do the same for obviously ministers and, and officials. So uh, absolutely, we work, with, we work with all the different parts, parts of government. Hi, well, thanks for talking to us, Elaine, and uh, good luck in your endeavours. Thank you, Christian. The heritage railway industry is one of the big tourist attractions in many parts of the country, but there have been problems uh, for the industry since COVID over various aspects, not least the difficulty of getting coal, uh, getting enough volunteers and so on. So I thought I'd have a chat with uh, the uh, Seven Valley Railway Managing Director, Jonathan uh, Dunster, who um, has uh, just taken up this role uh, after a long time in the rail industry. Jonathan, welcome to Calling All Stations, and thank you very much for taking up your time to talk about this interesting issue. Can you tell me first a bit about uh, your role at Seven Valley um, and uh, the railway itself and uh, what it actually, where it actually goes and what it covers? Yeah, of course I can, Christian. Thank, thanks very much for the opportunity to talk to you today as well, by the way. It's really appreciated. Um, so I, um, as you say, I, I retired last year from the mainline rail industry. I haven't spent my whole career there. But in parallel to that activity, I, I have been a volunteer on the Seven Valley Railway for about 32 years. And um, uh, earlier this year, uh, our previous managing director uh, decided it was time for her to move on uh, to a different visitor attraction. Um, and the board of the SVR asked me if I would... Um, Help them really by covering uh, covering the role uh, at least for the rest of this year. Um, given my sort of background and knowledge of the Seven Valley Railway and, and having been a volunteer board member there as well, I should have said before as well, um, my sort of understanding of the challenges it faces right now. Maybe you could uh, set out what maybe specifically for your uh, railway what what difficulties you've found um, in taking up the role. Okay, well the the, the Seven Valley Railway I think is you know sort of um, an example uh, of of the challenges faced by the heritage rail sector more more generally, Christian. But I mean, in our in our case, really in summary, um, th things really started to get a bit tricky for us. I would say about fourteen months ago, in 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 January or February of twenty twenty two, because uh, like many of us in society, I think we we were we were looking forward optimistically at that point to uh, a sort of bounce back to, to normality following COVID, um, uh, and our our sort of budget plans and our operational plans are all put together on, on the basis of you know uh, social distancing restrictions and all those sorts of things having then been behind us uh, and us getting back to the sort of level of business and numbers and the, and the sphere of operation that we sort of saw up to up to 2019. Um, but what very quickly happened at the beginning of last year of course was the Russian invasion of Ukraine which 
you know, uh, you might think, well, what on earth does that have to do with heritage railways? Indeed. Um, well, 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 of course, uh, it's not obvious, but and I, and I say, of course, I shouldn't really say, of course, but it, it caused great interruption to the coal supplies uh, in from, from Eastern Europe, um, uh, which was a, a significant proportion of, of the coal being used by UK heritage railways. So sh shortage of coal meant the price going up. Uh, and, and what we saw, you know, throughout last year really was, you know, a, a huge increase in, in coal prices, ne nearly a 200% increase uh, at one point. Um, uh, and if that wasn't difficult enough to uh, to deal with, um, later in the year, as as we've all as, as 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 sort of UK citizens felt the pinch, I think would be the best way of describing it. You know, we saw as inflation started to rise, um, you know, visitor numbers started to fall um, beyond those that we previously would have you know forecast and anticipated and so the beginning of the year started off reasonably okay uh, other than i've said you know the, the uh, coal costs business numbers were reasonably okay to begin with but started to tail off quite quite noticeably by the middle of the year uh, and on normal timetable running days we were starting to see pretty much a, a consistent average of about 20 percent fewer people visiting the railway um special events that we tend to put on like a lot of other heritage railways were still well attended at that point in time in fact they were probably better than forecast um, that's the christmas the santa stuff well um at the beginning, at the beginning of the year it's more things like um our, our springsteen gala our diesel enthusiast galas and, and things like that they were they were very well supported you know in the first two trading quarters of last year um when we got to the latter part of the year the 20 percent reduction in normal timetable passenger numbers continued uh, didn't get any worse fortunately but we also then started to see uh, a reduction in um, passenger numbers or visitor numbers at special events so you know our autumn steam gala which is normally one of the high points of the of the steam enthusiast calendar um, was lower uh, numbers than we would generally normally have seen uh, we have things like the national rail strikes coming into effect us there because of course a lot of our passengers come to Kidderminster by rail um, and then the general cost of living, you know, squeeze on people's pockets also affected our Christmas season actually last year. And that, and that came in uh, at about 75% of, of the capacity that we had available. So when we got to the end of the year, Christian, we, we were seeing a sort of perfect storm really last year, which was, you know, very, very high coal costs, um, less less passengers and, and visitors coming because of, of the high inflation and you know, squeeze on disposable income. Uh, and then, of course, the final blow right at the end of last year, which we've all experienced personally, I'm sure, is increased utility costs, particularly, of course, electricity and gas. And that and that has really put the tin lid on things. It's made it very, very difficult for us to you know, get to a position where we can uh, even get to a break-even point financially so this year. So it's a double whammy in terms of uh, both costs on the one hand uh, and uh, uh, income on the other. So, so you've had correct, yeah. uh, both yeah. both sides of the PNL kind of thing have kind of uh, affected you. So, uh, what 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 can you do? Because you have must have a certain amount of fixed costs, and yeah. you're quite a big organisation. You've got you've got uh, quite a lot of employees. I think you've got quite a big turnover. Yeah. Uh, what what yeah. can you do uh, immediately? You know, does it right. actually threaten your future? Um, well, it, well, it could threaten our, our, our future, Christian, if we don't do things decisively. Um, and so, re regrettably, we have to take a few decisions at the beginning of this year, which really we'd rather not have to do. But for the survival of the business, and I'm going to term it as a business at this stage because it is, um, you know, we've, we've had to take some fairly swift and, and dramatic action. So, 
Um, we, we've decided that we are going to run um, trains on fewer days this year. So uh, last year we ran on five days a week on the main season. Uh, we were closed on Mondays and Tuesdays last year. Um, but th this year we're also going to be closed on Wednesdays. So we will only run on Thursday, Friday, Saturdays and Sundays, plus bank holiday Mondays. We'll, we'll do those by exception, really. Um, uh, and we are going to run... Um, a, a slightly increased amount of diesel traction this year compared to last year. Um, we are still going to run steam every day, um, but we are going to be quite careful about you know, the size of locos that we use. And um, and the as I say, we're, we're going to run a little bit more diesel traction this year. So probably 50% of our services ultimately uh, will, will be diesel hauled uh, on normal passenger operating days, not on special events, for example. But um, isn't, that, isn't uh, that cutting off your nose to spite your face? If you run fewer well, services... Well, I think it's fair to say that one of the things we learned last year was that we, because we put together a timetable you know, in the early part of the year based on a rather optimistic forecast, this was before the, the Ukraine crisis and before you know, um, uh, coal prices started to, to impact us and before we saw inflation um, affecting business numbers, um, we, we probably, in retrospect, put on too many trains last year. We were running really a three train service on most days um, and you know very quickly it was clear we were we were carting quite a bit of fresh air around um, now i don't want to import too much sort of you know hard-headed business mainline railway acumen to the heritage railways but we have got to be clear that really we can't afford to cart a lot of fresh air around um, and so the the, the 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 logic behind what we're doing this year is to is to run enough trains to meet the demand. We don't want overcrowded trains, of course, um, but we don't want to carry the cost of running a lot of empty capacity around either. So it's a bit of a fine balance. Um, but what we're not going to do also this year is set in stone for the entire year what our timetable will be. If we start to see improved visitor numbers, you know, we can build things back into the timetable. But what I don't want to do is have a lot of sunk cost at the beginning of the season that we, we then can't recover. OK, but do, I mean, do you have... Um wider problems in terms of the long-term availability of coal uh volunteers uh um, having volunteers um and uh being able to interest people in in the industry and also the fact that uh, i presume that quite a lot of your visitors are people of my sort of age um uh, who are obviously going to be fewer and fewer whoever remember steam so are those all issues um well um Fortunately, I would say not generally. So coal supply now seems to be easing. The, pro the price sadly isn't coming down very quickly, but the supply chain seems to seems to be a bit a, a bit more freely flowing now. Um, so at this moment in time, we're not we're not too concerned about the supply of coal going forward. Um, hopefully, the price will start to fall um, fairly soon as well, which will, which will help. Um, in terms of volunteers, we we enjoy um, a really great you know level of support from our working volunteers from age sort of. 14 up to 80 plus you know so we've got a whole you know about 1700 working volunteers supporting the railway some of them of course uh, come and do their bit you know once or twice a year and some come almost every every day you know so we've we've got a great range there christian i think of, of age ranges and interests and you know it encourages me greatly to see the youngsters you know male and female you know still wanting to get involved in heritage railways and we must do as much as we possibly can to to sort of continue that because there's a lot of distractions for our youngsters in society today so i think i think that's quite good um in terms of visitor uh, demographics um it's an interesting one really because heritage railways are probably seen by many people to only appeal to railway enthusiasts but in reality railway, railway enthusiasts make up less than 10 percent of our visitor numbers every year um they come in great numbers for our 
you know, big railway enthusiast events, and they come in small numbers every day that we run. Of course they do. Um, but 90% of our visitors are actually members of the public looking for a day out, um, you know, around the West Midlands. Right. And, uh, you know, so so we, we've we got to be relevant as a visitor attraction uh, and attractive to people who've got quite a lot of choice around the West Midlands as to how they might spend their money if they want to go for a day out. Interesting. So um, let's widen it out to, to the broader uh, picture. Uh, now, there must be some, I think, some 70 or 75, uh, something like that, uh, heritage railways around the country. Was it more than that? And, well, and do well, these problems apply to uh, uh, to them? Uh, you know, are there some that are likely to be under threat? Well, that's an interesting one. Now, I, I read somewhere, and you, you, you might know more about this than I, but I read somewhere recently talking to colleagues in the Heritage Railway Association. There are all, there are 200 member organisations in the Heritage Railway Association now. So, um, so Heritage Railway... Well, not all with working services, I'm sure. No, no, that's right. Yeah. But 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 Heritage Railway preservation in the UK you know, really, really blossomed, didn't it, in the, in the 70s and 80s. And, you know, I, I suppose if I'm being objective about it, probably it expanded a little bit too far, Christian. So we are at a bit of a crossroads, I think, probably as a, as a you know, uh, a sector. You know, will it will it will it really cause some of these old? Well, I'd like to think not, but but you know, everybody looking after heritage railways at the moment is going to have to make some tough decisions about you know managing their cost base in particular. You know, making sure they don't operate on on days that they really can't afford to do that, um, and and making sure also they remain relevant as a attractive proposition for visitors to come to at a point in time when there's a lot less disposable income around. Um, so for me, it's about, you know, I mean, social media, for example, I think has really helped us as a marketing tool. As you, as you know, you can hit so many people, um, you know, from the comfort of their own homes. Um, and the more the more we collect electronic details of our visitors and we're able to encourage them to pay return visits and you know, advocate us as a visitor attraction to their friends and family, the, the, the better it is, really. So so we're trying to appeal to a broad church, Christian, really, I think. And that and that is that has got to be the key to survival but do you see uh i mean you must talk with some of your colleagues are, are some of them really struggling um it certainly seems to me that whilst um whilst we at the svr probably went public a little bit before others on the scale of the challenges being faced um it certainly seems to me that most other of the, what i would call the mainstream standard gauge heritage railways have, have said now that they're all feeling facing the same issues um you know so i think i think as long as they understand all those issues, they're facing up to them and they're taking action and explaining to passengers why there might be fewer trains and fewer operating days this year. But basically, we're still open and come and support us on the days that we are operating. Then we've got a reasonable chance of surviving, I think. So you, you think the two aspects, just to end up with, the two aspects that have to be worked on is both attracting a wider visitor base and looking at your costs? A absolutely right. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, like all businesses, I think, in summary, in 2019, when going the going was still good, Christian, we didn't look, I don't think, really carefully at our costs because we were we were making reasonable we, we were making a reasonable turnover and a reasonable profit. You know, so you don't tend to look at these things in those circumstances, do you? But we've we've we we now have a much better handle on that. And until costs come down, we, we certainly can't afford to expand much more in terms of what we're operating this year than than we've had to do, I'm afraid. Okay. okay, well, well, thank you, John, for that. That's uh, uh, really, really helpful. And here's my thought from the departure lounge. 
The tragic story of the 77-year-old cyclist who was inadvertently pushed into the path of an oncoming car by a pedestrian and killed in Huntington recently has attracted considerable media attention. It has sparked outrage in the right-wing press because the woman pedestrian who has health difficulties has been jailed. But I think it is precisely the culture wars generated by those newspapers which has created a climate in which pedestrians are so incensed by cyclists they'll threaten old ladies cycling on the pavement. Fermenting discord can have terrible real-life consequences. Thank you for listening to Calling All Stations, which is a Kogitamas production.